This podcast contains sensitive content and stories of sexual harassment and may not be fit for everyone. Listener discretion advised. Welcome to Catching a Case, episode one. This is Sarah and Megan, and we're going to start our three-episode discussion on sexual harassment on a college campus by looking at what sexual harassment is. Most people think sexual harassment is considered rape or abuse, but sexual harassment is characterized as unwelcome sexual advances, requests for sexual favors, and other verbal or physical misconduct of of a sexual nature. When you think of sexual harassment, what do you think of it? I think of, personally, I think of a, like, a guy coming on to me at a bar or a party or, you know, just someone, like, putting their hand on my thigh when, you know, maybe I was flirting with them, but that's not what the goal was. And it just, you know, it just wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't what I was going Mm -hmm. for. So... That's kind of what I think of. I mean, yes, there's always rape, not downplaying that at all, but I think that's more of an extreme. That's more abuse than harassment. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? What yeah. about you? Like, usually it's like the typical like rape, abuse, or like even just like taking advantage of a drunk girl. Like, you know, she's too intoxicated to do anything. Like, there's not much she can do, like, to stop you. Like, you're a man, you're a lot more physically able than her not saying she's not but guys can take more alcohol than women it's kind of like that's a fact proven fact so like oh yeah not saying it's always the guy's fault but 90 percent of rape cases it is i think i think that though that i think that sexual harassment and abuse and whatever is always thought of as men to women when in reality it can be women to men or you know, women to women, men to men, mm-hmm. gay relationships, whatever. It can be anything. I just think it's more viewed as men to women. Yeah, like, you I always... I think that like, has to do with sexism. Yeah, like, especially, like, in movies, it's usually portrayed as, like, the man going on to the woman. And, like, them being the damsel in distress, like, they can't do anything about it. Coming into college, it's completely a different experience than anything you've ever experienced before. It's just total freedom, freedom from your parents and, you know, like not having any, anyone basically to tell you what to do. The first time testing out being an adult, living on your own. So for a lot of kids, it's kind of like the first dip into parties and alcohol and maybe drugs and just kind of like experimenting with a lot of stuff, which is all the idea of college. The idea of the college life is experimenting. And so like for me, I never really partied in high school because the whole goal was getting to college, getting into a good school and whatever. But so that didn't really leave me for any time to like go out on a Friday night and get 
drunk in my friend's basement. So coming to school, I didn't jump off into the deep end, but definitely went out the first couple weekends. <laughs> I think every freshman kind of did that. The first couple weekends were crazy. Everybody was out, everybody's out partying. Doesn't really matter where you go because every townhouse leads right into the backyards and they all connect. So pretty much any senior will let you through their house. I don't know about you, Megan, but that's- It's just like easy to like go in there and like meet people. Like you don't know what to expect. You're a freshman, like "Mm, this is all new. And like, even just like the little things, like you didn't know what it'd be like. You didn't think it'd be just that easy to get into party. You walk up, knock. Oh, hey, can I come in? Sweet, cool. I'm going to the backyards. Yeah, so easy. Especially when it's nice out, no one cares if you walk through at all. It just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. The only, I not to say the only problem, but like the townhouses don't give alcohol out. They just don't because it can kind of come back to them and bite them in the butt. So, like, like, that could be a problem. But also, like, we go to school with people who are 21 and whose siblings are 21, whatever. So I feel like, not to say there's always accessibility to alcohol, but if you try hard enough, it's not that hard Mm -hmm. to get it. So I think that's really just, like, a jump into drinking is like oh my god i can actually get alcohol for the first time ah let me just chug a whole four loco and take five shots of vodka like maybe you should slow your roll yeah and i feel like if you haven't like experienced how you are drunk like you don't know how you're gonna act and i feel like that can get you into tricky situations oh yeah completely you need to know if, when you get drunk, if you're gonna get mad, if you're gonna be sad, if you're gonna be dancing on top of tables, being a completely different person. Making out like, with any guy you see? Uh, yeah, that's... Okay, so like, I know like everybody's college experience is different like with partying, but like, personally for me, they're just random guys that come up to me and grab my ass in the middle of parties, walk away, don't even know who it is. Like, it's just weird to think about it. Like, that's technically harassment. Oh yeah, I have that happen to me all the time. They just, like, it's like walking by, they'll just be like, oop, let me grab that. And it's like, first of all, I don't know who you are. What are you doing? I've also, I've had guys like come up to me and just start talking to me, but it's like, I have no clue who they are. They've never even like didn't bump into me, didn't nothing. They just like spotted me from across the room and we're like going in for the kill. Mm. Quietly avoid. Like, oh, sorry, gotta go. (laughs) One guy literally came up to me and just started to make out with me. I was like, dude. No, I don't even know your name. Like, slow your roll. So many people may assume that sexual harassment or assault really only happens at big state schools, but it actually can happen anywhere. It can happen at any college, any place. So 
joining us today, we have the rest of our team, Mike, Tyler, and Tyshawn, to give the guys' perspective on what happens at a party on a college campus. So, Tyler, have you ever seen anything ever happen at a party? Have you ever been, like, a witness? I haven't been a witness to full-blown sexual harassment, but there have been signs that indicate that something could be on the way when you're in the backyard of the townhouses. There's mobs of people. Everybody's dancing everywhere. So there can be signs of people kind of making moves towards that act, but it's hard to tell and when you're in the zone and you're kind of under the influence for the most part. So it's, it's very difficult to see those signs, but for the most part, I've never seen it like full on, but I've seen signs. The only real experience that I've seen of sexual harassment occurred during winter break after the first semester. It was a New Year's Eve party with a bunch of people that I grew up with at high school, all graduated together, probably 12 of us at a house. There was definitely drinking going on and there were weren't any couples at the house, so you never would have expected anything like that to happen. Um, there were these two people, very good friends, but never, you know, dated, never in a relationship, never anything, never anything like that. Um, definitely, both of them were way over the influence. And the worst part about this act was no one knew it took place because no one remembered or everybody fell asleep. I know from my experience that I fell asleep first, so I didn't see any of this happen. And I woke up the next morning hearing about what had happened. And it was uh, a mix of drugs, both alcohol and marijuana. And at the end of the night, the guy ended up sexually harassing the girl. And the worst part about it was the girl had no knowledge of it happening. Woke up the next morning, didn't think anything of it, didn't know anything happened. And the, about the rest of the 10 of us were in absolute disbelief, you know, complete shock of what happened and it was a terrible act to hear about and especially being a witness who ended up falling asleep if i was awake i knew i would have intervened and stepped in but to think that everybody else fell asleep before this happened was shocking tyshawn do you have a story uh so i have this friend and he he uh, he is different around me than he is around girls. And I know a lot of girls who have said that he is just disgusting. And I don't see it in him because he just doesn't show that around me. But around every girl that has seen him, they say he's been touching them and being inappropriate. And it's crazy to me to think of it like that because uh, I don't know like he doesn't act like that way but there was this one time where he uh, almost made a girl kill herself because she didn't want the fear of like him getting arrested she didn't want him to deal with it so she thought the right thing to do was kill herself, which she did it, thankfully. But it just messed up everyone around her. And to think that she went to that level and didn't go to, like, the authorities or Title IX is just crazy to me. 
And I wonder how many other people just hold that in instead of going to the Title IX uh, lady or the, the campus police and resort to these actions. I can agree with that based on feeling like uncomfortable. You can see that at townhouses, you know, you can tell when you look at someone if they're feeling uncomfortable, but I'll bet none of them the next day will go to Title IX or go to counseling or even go to the police at that night and say, hey, you know, this is making me uncomfortable. There's suspicious people over here. I don't think anybody will say that. I feel like that's a huge issue with what has been going on on every college and every major case that everybody's kind of afraid to stand up and really speak their mind. And I feel like that's why boys do it so much because they don't really have that uh, the consequences. Like they feel like they can do it and nothing will happen and girls don't really tell like that. And so they continue to do it and then girls do tell their friends but they never tell the people who can actually do something about it and give them uh, give them consequences. I also think like the girls think they're gonna be labeled as like a whore for like stuff like that. Cause they like might have flirted with them at a party. So it might've gave them, the, gave them the wrong impression. But like, I also think people don't know like what Title IX can actually do for them. Cause like you don't actually have to report a case. Like you can go for counseling, but I don't think people know that. And I feel like we need to talk about it more at school. I feel like as soon as the term Title IX comes up, like if you're kind of throwing out those papers or forms, is brushed to the side because everybody assumes exactly what Meg just said. They have that assumption that goes to their mind, so they brush it to the side, but they don't really know what it's offering you. Mike, do you have a story to tell? Uh, yeah, I do. So I was at the townhouses one night in the backyard. It was in... It was at the end of the fall semester. Um, and I was at the townhouse. Um, one of my um, friend, like a girl that I knew from my floor, um, she was at the townhouse. I ended up running into her and we were just like talking a little bit. And I knew that she had a boyfriend like at, from home, whatever. And she was just, we were just sitting there talking and this guy came up that she knew and she was like, hey, and she was, she had had a lot to drink. So she was really intoxicated and the guy just started like flirting with her and she didn't really seem to like know what she was like getting herself into. And she was kind of, she kind of like flirted back for a little bit and he started asking if he could if he could like take her back to the room and she was like no but she was like laughing it off like it wasn't that serious and the guy just kept pushing it and pushing it and she started and that was when she started like she stopped she started to like stop laughing and she was starting, I could tell that she was starting to feel really uncomfortable and she was, she was trying to walk away and he just kept like walking with her and following her. Um, and eventually he was asking if he could see, if he could see her boobs at some point tonight. And then he was asking her to go 
make out with a girl. Um, and yeah, I, I, she was really uncomfortable and she came up to me and just asked me to bring her back to, um, to her dorm just so she could get away from him. So I eventually brought her back, but that's just an example of something that if she had been more drunk and not really realized what it, what was going on, she really could have been um, affected by that, by that night a lot more. Yeah, luckily she was like with it enough to be like, no. But even if you say no and you laugh, you still said no. Like, right. and to repeatedly say no, that, like, when they say no means no, like, doesn't matter if it's with a laugh or, you know, like, doesn't matter the context. You can tell someone's uncomfortable and they're saying no, then leave it at that. Yeah. Lawrence Gerard Nasser is a former USA Gymnastics national team doctor and osteopathic physician at Michigan State University. He began working as an assistant professor at MSU's Department of Family and Community Medicine in the College of Medicine. He's even a co-author on at least six research papers on the treatment of gymnastics injuries, but the one thing he'll forever be known as is a sex offender. He left his victims broken and mentally unstable. His hundreds of victims will never be the same. Here are some of their statements at the sentencing of Nasser that have put him in prison for the rest of his life. The hardest battle I will continue to face is, even in the situations, you feel most safe. You can never let your guard down. You can't trust a world-renowned doctor. Who in this world can you trust? These feelings don't just stem from the abuse of Larry Nassar. As if the struggle of what Larry Nassar did isn't bad enough. It's horrifying that MSU and USA Gymnastics are not stepping up to the plate to admit their wrongdoing. I've gone from a raving fan of MSU to now seeing green and white in the very same way as I do Larry Nassar. I want MSU and USAG to know what they have done is on the very same level of accountability as the crime Nassar has committed. I strongly, strongly believe that MSU and USAG's inaction places an accountability on them for Nassar's access to minor, which led to the sexual abuse. MSU knew what was being done, done to these athletes and decided to turn a blind eye to keep their reputation strong and their pockets full. If they would have only taken action upon the first reporting, they would have saved me and all of these other women standing before us today from an afterlife full of pain and agony. As for what we now know of USAG, Paying out a victim to keep quiet is beyond my wildest dreams of wrong. Shame on you for looking the other way when this was brought to your attention. I'd like to take a moment to comment on MSU's Board of Trustees 
as well as the president of MSU, Luanna Simon. How convenient that you've decided not to attend today. You are a coward and your decision to watch from the sidelines is perfect representation of your lack of leadership. It sickens me that for 16 months, you allowed Larry Nassar to continue to see young children under your guidance while he was under investigation for sexual abuse. Now that this is a public matter, you put out a blanket statement as your sincere apology. Have you ever thought to pick up the phone to apologize to your victims? You convinced my parents that you didn't stick your fingers in my adolescent vagina. But I knew when it was time to use my first tampon, not to worry, because my hymen wasn't intact. You used my body for six years for your own sexual gratification. That is unforgivable. Without my knowledge or consent, I had engaged in my first sexual experience by kindergarten. I've been coming for you for a long time. I've told counselors your name in hopes that they would report you. I have reported you to Child Protective Services twice. I gave a testament to get your medical license revoked. You were first arrested on my charges. And now, as the only non-medical victim to come forward, I testify to let the world know that you are a repulsive liar. Larry Nassar wedged himself between myself and my family and used his leverage as my parents' trusted friend to pry us apart until we fractured. And fractured we did. My relationship with my mother is still marbled with pain, anger, and resentment. And for a long time, I told people that I did not have a family. I was 12 years old when I told my parents, when Larry rubbed my feet, he uses his penis. My parents confronted him and he denied any such action. Due to complex details that I won't get into here, my parents chose to believe Larry Nassar over me. His belief that I had lied seeped into the foundation of our relationship. Every time we got into a fight, he would tell me you need to apologize to Larry. Larry Nassar's actions had already caused me significant anguish, but I hurt worse as I watched my father realize what he had put me through. My father and I did our best to patch up our tattered relationship before he committed suicide in 2016. You're not alone that your family didn't listen, that they trust the abuser. But you as a small child had nothing to gain, nothing, by complaining. And still your voice went unheard, I promise you. It's not unheard now. I too was sexually assaulted by Larry Nassar. Multiple times at multiple appointments. My last treatment was in August 2016. A week later he was let go by MSU. I'm possibly the last child he will ever assault. MSU Sports Medicine charged me for those appointments. My mom is still getting billed for appointments where I was sexually assaulted. May I address the defendant? You may. I have never wanted to hate someone in my life, but my hate towards you was uncontrollable. Larry Nassar, I hate you. 
I will work on forgiving you, as I know that is what God wants. But at this moment, I will leave forgiveness up to him. There is one thing you could do to help with the forgiveness. Instead of just sitting there acting, weak and feeble, you could start writing down each and every time MSU, Twist Stars, and USAG could have stopped you. And instead of getting up at your sentencing, giving some hollow, insincere apology, you could outline all the times for me, for us. That MSU, Twist Stars, and USAG should have stopped you. You were too brazen, too cavalier, you flaunted it. Don't try and apologize or rationalize. Don't use cliches like a match in a forest fire. If you want to salvage yourself, you need to begin the reformation pro process. You need to do redeeming acts. You need to put others first. Do the right thing for us. Be honest. Try and help us. Tell us who knew what and when. Tell us how and when there are opportunities to stop you. Tell us about the tail signs that others at MSU, Twist Stars, and USAG should have seen but didn't. And one of your last public acts actually helps someone. Of course, we are aware that some knew, but there are likely many, many more opportunities these institution, institutions and individuals had to stop you long before Rachel and the Indy Star article surfaced. You could talk about the time Coach Clegus called you to discuss the allegations that Larissa Boyce made about you sexually assaulting her back in 1997. Or the conversations that you had with Stemple. See, I am familiar with what Mark Twain said about rumors, that a rumor travels halfway around the world. If you aren't familiar with Twain, trust me, you'll have a time to look it up. So don't tell us that you never got that phone call from Clegus. Someone like Larissa Boyce doesn't make an assertion like she did against a doctor like you, to your friend Clegus, of sexual assault, and it just sits there. We know you two spoke about it. We know you had a phone call. Please, Larry, help my sisters. This would be a redeeming act. Please don't waste your allocution on your grief your regret, or any other emotion. Don't tell us how you and God have made amends or how you are different. You need to confess the facts. You can help others. And if you do, if you help my sisters, it might help in my forgiveness and maybe others it might not lower your sentence, but it might just start you down a road of reformation and redemption.
Just remember, Larry, it's never too late to do the right thing. Now to the court. I am more than how he treated me. I am not letting him take any more time away from me. No more time at appointments. No more time being misled. And no more time being manipulated. Years of monthly appointments, including the supply room. Yeah, the supply room is long enough. <laughs> Do you think that is long enough, Judge? I think it's long enough, it's over. And so here's some advice, Judge. Don't be afraid. A 40-year minimum sentence is not long enough, and it doesn't send the right message. See, Judge, I doubt the Attorney General, this court, or his defense attorneys, knew what was coming, allowing all of us to speak. None of you could have anticipated the breadth or the depth of the statements, but he knew. The sexual harassment allegations against Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein sparked an online movement in which women wrote Me Too on social media platforms, highlighting just how pervasive the issue of harassment is. It was inspired by actress Alyssa Milana's call to action. And celebrities from Reese Witherspoon to Olympian Michaela Marooney all shared their personal stories of their own experiences with sexual harassment. But what many people don't know about the Me Too movement is it was actually started over a decade ago by an activist, Tarana Burke. And Tarana joins us now to discuss her work. Tarana, thank you for joining us, first of all. Uh, you started this hashtag movement in 2006, and you focused on what you called empowerment through empathy. What do you mean by that? I mean, well, so Me Too started not as a hashtag. It started as a campaign of an organization that I founded, Just Be Inc. And empowerment through empathy was the thing that I felt that helped me which was that other survivors who empathized with my situation helped me to feel like I wasn't alone and gave me sort of entry into my healing journey. At first, your work focused on women of color, and it's now expanded. Tell me about how it's changed. Well, my focus in all the work that I do is for the most marginalized people, and so I worked with young women of color in the South, and then when we um, moved our work into, like, we had, like, a MySpace page, and women started coming forward and talking to us and saying, thank you for this, and we needed it. And we realized it had to expand to more than young people. And so we worked with young women, mostly black and brown women, um, across, you know, through, through our MySpace page, but also throughout the South, and then later in Philadelphia and New York. You know, we're hearing critics of this campaign say that if this had been an issue that was just pervasive in the black community or for people of color, that this would not have gotten the traction that it did with the Hollywood celebrities. What do you make of that sentiment? I mean, it's true. Um, I think we've seen that before. We've seen it in other cases. I mean, like Leslie Jones was, was targeted online on Twitter and there was not a groundswell of support for her and across Hollywood. And so um, I think that's the case, not just in Hollywood, that people of color are usually um, the last to be supported around a, a variety of issues. So, Why? Um, because of racism, because of oppression, because of the way the systems work in this country. Um, the least of these are the least of these. And so we have to speak of ourselves and we have to create movements ourselves and we have to insert ourselves in larger movements. Lupita Nyong'o came out yesterday on Thursday mm -hmm. with an op-ed in the New York Times. What did you make of her story? 
you know, it's, it's so sad and it's so, just all of the stories are sad. But um, just in relation to what you were just saying, it's like this is evidence that this happens across the board. So we've had all of these other actresses um, that have come forward having been people of color. Uh, so that it, it made it seem like it might be just white women, but it's not. It's, it's these people who are predators prey on everybody. You started this movement, Me Too. Alyssa Milana helped get this hashtag up and running. Absolutely. Are you in touch with her? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, she, a lot of people, once the Me Too hashtag started gaining popularity, people who are familiar with my work, I started getting like bombarded with messages and like, why don't I see your name attached to this? And so people were saying, you know, Tarana Burke has a Me Too that she already does and why isn't she being talked about? And so Alyssa um, reached out to me early, like Tuesday, and said, you know, I want to meet you. I think that your work is amazing. And um, we've been in contact. We were on, I was on Good Morning America the other, the other day. It's okay. Um, <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> um, and um, yes, and we've talked about collaborating to yeah. both, you know, she says that she's very committed to um, making sure the goals of our the work that I do are met and like put forward. You know, one of the things I struggle with, we do these stories and it takes up a, a huge chunk of our airtime. Mm -hmm. Then it goes away. Yep. We don't hear about the issues anymore. Yep. How do you ensure that that doesn't happen with this? You know, I think that the, the moment that we are in and the and, and just in the world is, is made like that. The hashtags are here and they're gone tomorrow. Yeah, so true. issues are here and gone tomorrow. But I think people, I'm an organizer by training. And so I have been, these kind of moments are like small victories and we ride the momentum and then we get on the ground and we do the work. And so where I come in, I think, is that like Alyssa and I are a perfect pairing because she can elevate the story and carry it forward through media, through Hollywood, and keep keep the conversation going. And I can organize on the ground and, and talk to everyday people, the people who I connect with and work with, about how we keep elevating this conversation and what work has to happen. It's one of the things that I loved about your story because you figured out a way to make it work and to reach out across the platform. But for these people who are disadvantaged, who don't have the Hollywood megaphone, how do you reach out to them? How do you get them the support? And how do you do that as you mentioned, on a social media platform where it's all about hashtags and then you move on. This is not a hashtag. This is a hashtag. Hashtags and social media are important, right? They're important for elevating the conversation, for getting the word out. But the work of it is that people, survivors like myself, who are in a position to, um, to elevate, you know, to have our voices heard or in a position to do work, because everybody who is a survivor can't insert themselves and start doing work. They're not ready. But for those of us who are ready, and we are, there are many of us, we are the ones who carry the conversation on. We are the ones who touch other survivors, right? Mm -hmm. Me too, the work that I was doing is really about survivors talking to each other. And so how we continue this after this moment is gone is that we continue those conversations and we start talking about like, what does community healing look mm -hmm. like? And I think survivors will, be, survivors will be at the forefront of that. You know, one of the wonderful things that has actually come out of the Trump administration has been that people, I know, hear me out here, <laughs> People who care about issues, whether it's a travel ban or something grassroots related, if you want to see action, you've got to make it happen. Absolutely. And we've seen that repeatedly, weekend after weekend, mm -hmm. from this platform. It's been incredible to watch. What's your message to people who want to get involved in an organization like Me Too or a travel ban or whatever it is? How do you organize from a grassroots level and turn that action plan into something tangible? 
But there's nothing new under the sun, right? If people are in their communities trying to figure out what do I do next, right? And people like to send donations and stuff, and that's great. I'm not, I would never turn down donations. But I think one is look for the people around you who are doing this work. Because inevitably there's somebody else who is, has an organization or a campaign going that you can join. And if not, connect with people in other places. The wonderful thing about social media is that we can instantly connect with people in other places and find out what they're doing. People contact me like, how can I be active? And I say, well, we can talk and let's, let me help you figure out some tools that you can use in your community. Mm-hmm. Whether it's people going into schools and talking about consent to children or having circles of survivors who get together and talk about what healing looks like for them or how, what policies have to change in their community and how they can do that. There are tons of ways to organize. And what we hope to do to, as a follow-up to this movement is put out that information through our website so people have resources for how to be active in their community. And you said you're going to be putting out some webinars and, and things online to help women? Absolutely. So the, the other thing is the hashtag has been beautiful to watch grow, but it's also been concerning about people who have suddenly disclosed this information and then don't have a container to process it in. So we want to do a series of webinars to help people talk about processing now that you have disclosed, what do you do now? We also want to talk about things like empathy and the role it plays in, in helping healing. And, and, you know, we want to talk about policy. So we want to do a series of webinars that's a follow-up with concrete information for people. Tarana Burke, your story is, is incredible, and it's great to see a grassroots movement, um, how it has formed and taken off. Thank you so much. Tarana, thank you for joining us. Any sexual harassment case is serious, but some have taken the eyes and the ears of the nation. A few examples of large cases include Jerry Sandusky molesting the young football campers at Penn State University and Larry Nasser taking advantage of gymnasts, ranging from the U.S. Olympic team to young kids. These acts and individuals who have endured these horrific crimes have led to the Me Too movement's growth. The Me Too movement is an organization that encourages and supports people to come forward about being sexually harassed. Founded in 2006, the Me Too movement was created particularly to help the survivors of sexual violence and to find pathways of healing. The Me Too hashtag grew the organization tremendously in just six months, allowing many people to come out as survivors and destigmatize the act of surviving. As an organization, their goal is to reframe and expand the global conversation around sexual violence, to speak to the needs of a broader spectrum of survivors, young people, queer, trans, and disabled folks, black women and girls, and all communities of color. We want perpetrators to be held accountable and we want strategies implemented to sustain long-term systematic change. Some sexual harassment can be threatening, which causes the victims to not report the issue. The Me Too movement has started to get people to come forward, and we are hoping that this podcast may do the same. Now when people think of this act, some find it confusing as to what to consider harassment. Most people feel that it is not serious enough to take to the police. However, people should report anything. No student should have to feel uncomfortable on campus and can go to many other people before talking to the police. For example, the Title IX coordinator provides a person that the students can go to if they feel they are being harassed. There are also counseling services available on most campuses 
where students can open up to a certified professional. If they don't feel comfortable going to the police, they should go to someone remaining quiet will only benefit their harasser. Hopefully this information helps you and your loved ones be more aware of what goes on in our world. College kids, listen. Take notice of this information so next time that you are at a party, you will be able to spot this action and prevent it from happening. Sexual harassment is a serious issue and we need to do everything we can to prevent it from continuing. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CaseCatching and tune in to our next episode coming out this week. Stay safe, stay alert, and don't catch a case.